I know. Well, good evening, church. Always a pleasure and a blessing to be preaching God's word to you this evening. Um, I know people are so outside with the packing party, which is awesome, doing that, f- doing that for Operation Christmas Child for the sake of the Great Commission, which is always encouraging. Um, and it's kind of in that same vein that we're going to be looking at a passage that kind of has to deal with greatly regarding the Great Commission. And so if you have your Bibles with you on your phones or a physical Bible, please open with me to Psalm 67. The book of Psalms, chapter 67. And the title of my sermon this evening, church, is going to be, Let the Nations Be Glad. Let the Nations Be Glad. And once you find your places in your Bibles, loved ones, if you may stand with me um, in this chapter as we hear the public reading of Scripture. And one thing I do have to say, though, is that I actually preached on this sermon earlier this year on a Sunday morning, um, but just considering the, some of the events that's, that's surrounding our church at the moment, you know, got the Operation Christmas Child, got Lolly Moon Offering happening in, in Christmas, and also, too, just the, the first short-term missions trip um, that Sovereign Way will be, um, be representing in December to East Asia, it just seemed very fitting just to, um, and also, too, I'm covering for someone today as well for preaching, it just seemed very fitting um, just to be able to return to this very old, uh, an older but very recent sermon sermon to look again at what the Psalm 67 has to say about how can the nations be glad. And so when you guys are there, we're going to be reading through this passage, and I'll be reading through the ESV, um, starting in verse 1, the entire psalm. So this is what the Lord says to us this evening, church, starting in verse 1. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for, the, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is what our Lord says to us this evening, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, by your grace that we're just able to gather this very chilly Wednesday evening, Lord, as a church. God, just to return to a passage that we are, many of us are familiar with. Some of us have never read this psalm before. But regardless, Lord, I just pray that um, as we just go through the psalm, Lord, that God, first and foremost, it will be your word going to your people, Lord. That, Father, we are just transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus, Lord, in Christ-like holiness. And that ultimately, Lord God, that we just have the same heart that you have, Lord, um, for the nations, God. That people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will hear the gospel, and people from all the nations will come to a saving faith in you, Lord. And I just pray that although we are a local church in the high desert, that, God, we will just um, start um, where we need to, Lord, as a church, so that, God, we can play our part in the Great Commission to be faithful evangelists, to be faithful um, world Christians, Lord, to declare your good news um, to the ends of the earth, started from our backyards to the ends of the earth, Lord. And so, Lord, go before me now, Lord. Remove me, Lord. Um, that would just be your word going to your people. Help me not to mess it up in any way, Lord. By God's spirit, empower me, Lord, to be able to do um, what no man can do apart from you, but preach your word by the spirit, Lord. It's not by my strength, but by your spirit. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters here, or anyone listening to this online, God, um, that, Lord, that we'll not just be hearers today, Lord, but God, just really hear what you're saying in your word and be doers of your word so that, God, again, we are made more into the image of your son, Jesus, causing us to know you more and to love you more, ultimately, um, to live lives worthy of the gospel. And so, Lord, go before us this evening. I ask this all in Christ's name we pray as a church. Amen. Maybe see the church. 
If you spend any amount of time here at Sovereign Way Christian Church, whether it be a week, a month, a year, um, you're going to soon realize that we are a church, to the best of our ability, right, that we're a church committed to the Great Commission. And for those who are unaware of the Great Commission, um, it's, I'm referring to the famous final words that Jesus bestows upon his disciples right before he ascends into heaven. Listen to what he says himself at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. This is what Jesus says. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And when we read this passage, the point here is that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians, you and me, right, we're commanded to make disciples from all the nations. But how do we do that, right? How do we make disciples? Well, the text says by going to them first, by baptizing them in the name of our trying God, and then teaching them to obey all of his commandments. And as a result, the church must be passionate about missions both in word and action. The church must be committed to completing this mission, for we are the means that God has ordained to achieve this end, that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be worshiping him before his throne in the new heavens and the new earth. And we know that in his word, God will accomplish his mission. Yet I do praise God that SWCC is doing all that we can at the moment, as small as small as a church as we are, um, when it comes to missions. We pray for an unreached people group every Sunday, which is really the best place to start. Today, tonight, we're doing Operation Christmas Child, packaging up all the various um, shoeboxes for kids of different ages. And these shoeboxes are going to be sent all over the world um, to some places where that, that, that even missionaries, the gospel, it's illegal for it to even be proclaimed there. Kids are going to be receiving these shoeboxes, right, which not only kind of shows our love for them physically, but within every shoebox is going to be a gift of the story of the gospel in their own language. And, and, and you know, Sister Brenda was saying, like, pray for these boxes because you never know that through this little token of love, that, hey, people actually care for me, they're going to read the gospel, the story of the gospel in their own language, and we pray that th- that, that leads them to come to saving faith, right? Yet yeah, a small church in the high desert is able to have an impact globally in some way, shape, or form. That's awesome. And yet, next December, um, here as a church, we're going to be planning, or at least I'll be representing we as a church to go into East Asia for a short-term mission trip with other um, entities in our state convention as Southern Baptists. Um, another thing that we as a church are doing as well, and even stuff when it comes to December as we give financially to Lottie Moon, um, which helps finance missionaries to provide resources afford the advance of the gospel. Yes, we being a small church or yeah, are doing our part when it comes to the Great Commission. And it's still my prayer that we will just continue to be faithful, to keep moving forward, um, to, to, to get the, the gospel known to all the nations. But yet, although I say all that, missions itself can never be the main goal. It can never even be the reason why we do it at all. And you're like, John, what do you mean? Because if missions is the end-all goal of why we do it in the first place, regardless if we actually do it or not, It is then nothing more but a man-centered attempt to merely add people to the church. What do I mean by that? And and let's be real. If the motivation to do missions was missions itself or because Jesus commands us as Christians, then we will never do it. At least never finish the mission. Why? Because where mere human effort can be filled with good intention, it alone is not sufficient to accomplish a task that only God's power can accomplish alone. 
Therefore, I offer a quote by the American theologian John Piper, which has been a, rem- a reminder to the church these past few decades on what the Bible tells us itself is the proper goal for missions. This is what Piper says. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does it. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless of millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. And so as we approach our text this morning in Psalm 67, um, or sorry, this evening, it's going to tell us how, to, how worship is the fuel and goal for missions. And as I begin to expound upon this psalm, not only will we soon discover God's heart for the nation through missions, but how we as a church function, it's going to matter to how we could reach this goal for missions as well. And so as a result, there's truly one thing that we must all begin doing when it comes to missions and this is going to be the main point of not only my sermon this, this evening, but also the point of the text as well. This is the main point to Psalm 67, if, you, if you're taking notes, loved ones. And it's that Christians are to pray for the nations. Simple as that. Christians are to pray for the nations. But, but what particularly, right? What particularly are we supposed to be praying for, for the nations? And as we move through our text this morning, we're going to see that the psalmist provides three prayer requests, really, on what every Christian should be praying for regarding the nations. We're going to see in verses 1 to 2 how the request for the Lord's blessing, the request for the Lord's blessing. In verses 3 to 5, we're going to see the request for the salvation of all nations. And finally, in verses 6 to 7, we're going to see the request for workers of the harvest. And it's my prayer, church, that by the time we are finished this evening, that we will not just walk away with the conviction that prayer is the place that we must all start with, but that it puts within us the desire um, to share our joy in Jesus with others so that not only our neighbors, people in our own backyard, in our own nation, but that all the nations will one day worship him too. So with all that build up, let's begin by examining the first prayer request, and it's the request for the Lord's blessing. So look at your Bibles, beloved. At the beginning of our text, right before verse 1, the psalmist has a little note, and he says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. And one thing that we have to understand is that the book of Psalms, it was a prayer book um, to the nation of Israel. Yet, these psalms, which are filled with all sorts of prayers and songs of worship, they do not only belong to Jewish believers in Jesus the Messiah, but also to Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish believers here as well, which would be most of us, right? As a result, the psalms are really our psalms, church, for they are all breathed up by God himself for his people from all nations at all times to pray and sing back to him. So in order to correctly interpret a psalm then, especially Psalm 67 this, this evening, it is critical that we understand two things about them. First, we need to understand what's the genre of a psalm. What's the genre? And second, we must determine what type of psalm we are looking at. And so with all that in mind, let's look at the first one regarding genre. And a genre is simply a form of writing um, which, is a, which has a distinguished particular set of rules. So in the case with the Psalms, its genre is commonly referred to as poetry, specifically Hebrew poetry. And this type of poetry, however, is not characterized by our poetry, right, which has a rhyming of similar sounds. Um, that's what we're used to in our English language, right? For example, 
Roses are red, violets are blue. Sugar is sweet and so are you, right? We hear the rhyming of the sounds there. But if you ever read a little bit of poetry in the Bible, you quickly realize that it doesn't really flow that way, right? Because you're quick to because instead, Hebrew poetry focuses on rhyming not of sounds, but with parallel thoughts. It's also known as parallelism. And I'm going to mention parallelism more on this one. Our psalm utilizes it throughout our evening together. In the meantime, all that you need to know is that all psalms are formulated as Hebrew poetry, and this type of poetry utilizes parallelism again. Also, Hebrew poetry will at times use figurative language like similes, metaphors, like, like word pictures to convey a particular idea in your mind. Again, all this is vital for us to rightly interpret a psalm in its literary context. That's why I'm going through this. Moreover, what type of psalm are we dealing with in our text this evening? And if, and if I'm honest, it's kind of difficult to identify what kind of psalm Psalm 67 is, for it doesn't tell us who wrote it, right? Nor the context which it was written in, right? There was not, there's not a, a specific instance why it was written for. It merely tells us that it's a psalm and a song. And, but what's the difference, right? What's the difference between a psalm and a song? Well, where psalms were often arranged to be sung. A song was arranged to be sung alongside the accompaniment of musical stringed instruments. That is why Psalm 67 begins with the musical note to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, and a song, right? As a result, all psalms are songs, but not all songs are psalms. I'll say that again. All psalms are songs, but not all songs are psalms. Psalm 67 for us, which makes it easy, just happens to be both. Furthermore, not only is Psalm 67 both a psalm and a song, but it functions more as really a prayer wish before God. And what I mean by that is that the majority of verbs, which are really the action words driving forward a sentence, in this psalm, it indicates the idea of a strong desire for something to come to pass through prayer. In other words, Psalm 67 is a bold prayer, asking not only for the Lord's blessing, but that this will lead to all the nations around the world worshiping God. Therefore, we begin to see this prayer unfold when we look at verse 1 of our psalm this evening. So look at your Bibles again, beloved, at verse 1. This is what the psalmist writes. He says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. So we see in verse 1, it opens with a clear expression of prayer before God. And not only is this prayer being directed toward God, but it is asking him for three things. His grace, his blessing, and his shining face. But before we can expand upon these three ideas, there's something else of immediate immediate greater importance. And it's the idea of the us in verse 1, which appears three times. Who is this us, right? Although we do not know the author, we can rightly assume that verse 1 is referring to the nation of Israel, originally, right? You might be asking yourself, well, how, John? Well, the Psalms were, as I said earlier, were originally written for Israel to pray and sing. Yet, there's also another reason. Look at verse 1 again, beloved. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Kind of hearing that, right? What other place in Scripture can you think, think of that this verse sounds very similar to? If you're thinking of the ironic blessing in number six, you would be correct, because that's what it's alluding to. Because Psalm 67 um, is pointing us back to this famous blessing. And for those who are like, John, I have never heard of the ironic blessing before. Well, 
To tell you a little bit about it, it's a blessing that God commands Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, and his descendants to really pray over the nation of Israel. Let me read to you this blessing. This is what Moses writes in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. He says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So we see in this passage, very similar, right? We see a threefold blessing that is meant to help us understand Psalm 67.1. And I'm going to do this because it reflects the most ancient and best way to interpret Scripture, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, right? Comparing Scripture, a harder scriptural passage with a much more easier one, right? That's been done throughout the history of the church. Very simple, but very effective, right? And so since all Scripture is breathed by God, there will, there will indeed be connections in various ways from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And since Psalm 67.1 is alluding back to Numbers chapter 6, it's then ideal that we interpret our psalm in this manner. Interpreting scripture with scripture. And so look at the first part of Psalm 61 again. It says, May God be gracious to us. And we see this clearly, as I said earlier, at the last part of Psalm 625. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. But kind of keeping these two passages in mind, what does it really mean to ask for God's grace? Well, it's simply asking for God's favor. And perhaps you heard of God's grace as being defined as his unmerited favor to all who believe in him, right? Whether you're Jew or Gentile, it's a gift, right? It's, it's something that God gives us that we don't deserve, and that's everlasting life in Jesus. Because what we do deserve is everlasting punishment in hell, Yet, although God, who is holy, he is justified, right, in judging sinful humanity accordingly for our sins with everlasting punishment in hell, yet he still chooses to show his people this grace. And that means demonstrating forgiveness for sin. And that also means that he shows mercy withholding judgment. And that also means that he provides grace leading to eternal life. And all of this, of course, as we know as Christians, is that this is possible through the one way to salvation, the way, the truth, and the life, God's Son, Jesus Christ, who paid for the sins of his people in full through his death on the cross. Therefore, this is a good reminder for us, beloved, on how we ought to pray, right? For example, you may pray for the Lord's forgiveness regarding um, your, um, your sin. Maybe you might play, um, plead for strength regarding a particular trial, like, Lord, help me get through this. This is difficult. It's, it's challenging. You may even pray, you know, for his will to come to pass over you or be known to you while you're going through this. But whatever your request may be known is to God, you must always start by praying for his grace. We must start there. Not only is it our hope founded upon God's grace to us, but it is the very thing that we need in every time of need. This is what the writer to the letter to Hebrews makes, um, or at least his point makes clear, um, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. This is what he says here, loved ones. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Where Aaron, the high priest of Israel, and his descendants after him prayed for God's grace upon Israel, Jesus, the Messiah, the greater high priest, Greater than Aaron's priesthood is the way his people receive God's grace. 
And this is because, as Hebrews says, he sympathizes with us in his humanity, but yet without sin. And he also overcomes sin on our behalf through his life, death, burial, and resurrection as the perfect son of God. And as a result, whenever you approach, loved ones, God's throne of grace, pray for that. Pray for his grace. Pray that his grace will strengthen you, for we have new life in Christ, and we're able to live for him. Pray for his grace to empower you, for in your time of need, you will be able to do the very thing the Lord is calling you to do. And this leads us to then consider the second, the second thing in Psalm 67.1, which alludes us back again to number six. And that's, and that's when God says to bless us, or when we ask God to bless us. When we look at Numbers 6, particularly in verse 24, we see the parallel. This is where Moses writes, The Lord bless you and keep you. And contextually here, the Lord's protective keeping of Israel, this would have been fresh on the Israelites' minds because it, what, happened, what big event happened right before this? That's when the Lord redeemed the nation of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, right? Therefore, this request for the Lord's blessing of continually protecting them was very um, fresh in their minds. But yet... This blessing of continued protection, number six, it's not the same as what the psalmist is praying for in Psalm 67.1. And I'm going to come back to that point when we look at verse 2 of Psalm 67. In the meantime, what does the psalmist mean by saying at the last part of verse 1 to make his face to shine upon us? Again, this refers again to Numbers chapter 6 and verse 25 where Moses writes, The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. So for asking the Lord to make his face to shine upon his people, it can at times be another way for God's favor, to ask for God's favor, especially in regards to salvation. And this is again clear contextually when number 625 and Psalm Psalm 67.1 both mention grace. But not only is it clear in the content of Psalm 67.1, but also how the verse itself is constructed. Do you recall when I mentioned earlier that Psalms use something called parallelism, parallel thoughts and stuff like that? Well, we see our first example here in verse 1, and it's called synonymous parallelism. Synonymous parallelism. And all that means is that whatever um, this, this line means, the second, or whatever the second line means, um, it's definitely, it's, or sorry, messed it up. All this means is that line 2 in different words repeats whatever is said in line 1. So whatever is said in the first line is repeated in synonymous terms, similar terms, in the second line. That's how we're able to understand this psalm. And so when the psalmist prays for God to make his face to shine upon us, he is really repeating the point for God to be gracious and to bless his people. So again, the psalmist is asking for God's gracious favor to shine upon his people, Israel, so that they may be blessed. But you might be asking yourself right now, well, what, what, what does this have to do with us, right? Why, what does the psalmist praying um, to God to bless Israel, how does that deal with us, right? And it's with this question in mind that, that we can start moving on in the psalm and start looking at verse 2. And so look at your Bibles, beloved, in Psalm 67, verse 2. This is what the psalmist writes. He says that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. Where verse 1 shows us the content of the psalmist's prayer, verse 2 gives us the reason for that prayer. And this is clear with the phrase that which appears in my ESV or so that in your CSB if you're using one at the beginning of verse 2. It expresses the reason why God is to bless Israel. 
And so the reason the psalmist is asking God to bless Israel is so that his way may be known on earth. In other words, God is to make his saving power, that is salvation, known to all the nations. And this parallelism, again, makes this point clear in verse 2. Yet, it's vital to realize that the point of the psalmist's prayer is not for the benefit of Israel alone. No. Instead, Israel is to be blessed with God's unmerited favor in order to be a blessing to the nations. As God made himself known through the nation of Israel, they are then to be the means to lead the nations to know God as well. And now let me ask you another question, beloved. What does this remind you of, right? This idea that, that through the nation of Israel, all the nations will be blessed. What person? Abraham, right? The reality of God blessing Israel so that it could be a blessing to all the other nations, that promise, it was first made with a man named Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, right? Consider what God first promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Sometimes it's famously known as the Abrahamic covenant. Covenant is just a promise. God says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so it's this passage in Genesis chapter 12, which is really pivotal in the entire grand story of the Bible. Again, it presents a threefold promise. God says he will keep with Abraham. Not only will will God give him a nation as fulfilled when God gave Israel the land of Canaan, modern day Israel, and a people which was fulfilled through the Israelites themselves, but there's also this blessing. But what is this blessing, right? And it's worthy to hear again the last part of the Abrahamic covenant. God says again to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2b to 3, he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not only does God say he will bless Abraham then, but he will be a blessing. How? Look again at that last part of verse 3. God says to Abraham, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So where the psalmist is praying to God to bless Israel in order for the nation to be a blessing to the rest of the world, this is not merely a prayer offered by the psalmist himself. Instead, it is a prayer offered to God in light of what he has promised to his people in Scripture. Therefore, when the psalmist is praying for God's blessing upon Israel so that it could be a blessing to the nations, it is really a prayer firmly trusted in God's will to come to pass. Since God has promised this to Abraham and his descendants, it is then appropriate for God's people, like Israel, to affirm these promises through prayer too. And it's a prayer like this, loved ones, that really that shows that we trust in his promises as recorded in the Bible. In response, we got to ask ourselves, do we pray with such conviction when it comes to the promises of God? Do we pray not only in light of what he promises, but with eager expectation that he will accomplish what he said he will do? Because when we focus on God's promises, it really rightly aligns our heart and will to what is most important to his heart and will. And since it is what God wills that will come to pass, let us join him all the more then. 
fervently in prayer. This is what the psalmist of, of Psalm 67 does in light of Genesis 12.3. And we have to do the very same in our prayer lives, church. Especially because such promises are not only limited to Abraham's descendants. Instead, they truly belong to spiritual Israel. In other words, all who believe in God's Son, Jesus the Messiah, and faith alone, not only experience the forgiveness of sins, along with the new life that comes in him, and the blessing of beating part of God's family forever, no, this is, this is not just limited to Jewish believers in Jesus, but to everyone else among the nations as well. You and me, loved ones. Consider what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6-9 to about this, which really explains how God's blessing to Abraham in Genesis 12 comes to pass. The Apostle Paul writes, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we see here in the, in the Galatians passage, right? Abraham placed his faith in the promise of God's Messiah, Jesus, and was declared righteous by God. Likewise, all who place their faith in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, are declared righteous as well. You're forgiven of your sins. So whether you are a literal physical descendant of Abraham or not, it is only those who believe in the name of Jesus that Abraham looked forward to with eager expectation that are rightly called the true sons of Abraham spiritually. And the most intriguing part of this promise that God first gives to Abraham is that through him, all the nations will be blessed. Paul says that God was preaching to him the gospel. But how was he preaching to Abraham the gospel? Look again at Psalm um, 67 verse 2, beloved. This is what the psalmist says. That your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations. And that last line is so crucial. Your saving power among all nations. And this is again taken from Genesis chapter 12. In the Hebrew here, the phrase underlying saving power, which appears in my ESV, or salvation in the Christian Standard Bible, it uses a very familiar word. And that word is Yeshua, which means salvation. And since there is only one name under heaven that is not only the way, the truth, and the life, but the only name that actually saves, it is none other than our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it's worth noting that Jesus' name in Hebrew is the same word, Yeshua. So in other words, Jesus is salvation. That's the gospel, that the nations will know the saving power of God through his Son, Jesus the Messiah. This is the first request of, this Lord, of the Lord's blessing, that we pray for God to bless us so that we may bless the nations. We pray, we pray for God to bless us with favor so that we can have the opportunity to bless the nations in knowing Jesus as well. And we will see later in verse 6 the one thing that we ought to pray for particularly when it comes to God blessing us. In the meantime, i got to ask you all this question. Again, how many of us actually pray like this, especially when it comes to missions, to evangelism? How many of us actually come before God's throne of grace, praying for his favor to bless us in any way possible so that we can bless the nations in knowing God? Do we maybe pray for our financial stability for the sake of our comfort? Or do we pray for more finances so that we can give it for the sake of the Great Commission? 
Do we maybe pray for more earthly treasure so that we can enjoy the things that in the end really have no significant purpose eternally? Or do we pray for more heavenly treasure to allow us to dedicate more time to what really brings glory to God? Because that is what it will look like if we pray like this, loved ones. That is what it will look like if we wanted to be blessed so that God could bless the nations through his blessing of us. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me, though. There's nothing wrong in praying for finances, a house, a car, a spouse, family education, or anything that God has graciously given to be utilized and enjoyed in his creation. Yeah, I'm just saying we have to get our priorities straight, loved ones. If God is going to be first in your hearts, then you must dedicate your hearts to what matters most to him. And it is that his people be a blessing to the nations by leading them to a saving knowledge of the Savior, Jesus. And this all must start with prayer. And I know I can, myself, I can fail at times with this, but we must all strive to keep this always in the forefront of our minds, loved ones. Especially because we see something more beautiful, really, in fold. Right after the psalmist's bold initial prayer in Psalm 67, verses 1 to 2. And this is what he says about his second request. So his second request is this, loved ones. That the request for the joy of all nations. The request that all the nations will be joyful, right? So look at your Bibles, beloved. At the beginning of our text, right before verse 3. The psalmist writes, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We pray for God to bless us so that we can be a blessing to all the nations in the world, that they may be praise God, right? And all the peoples here is a reference to the various people groups across the world throughout history. And the vision is people from, God's vision at least, right, is that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus and bowing before his heavenly throne in the new creation, this is, what, this is what the Apostle John gloriously records in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. This is what he says. He says, After this I look, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be worshiping God in the end. That's what the Bible says. That's how it will play out in the end. That is what Psalm 67, 67 verse 3 is telling us. And what is interesting is that Psalm 67 3 is repeated, repeated verbatim in verse 5 of our psalm. But why? Why is that the case? Well, the psalmist is utilizing a literary device called a refrain. A refrain which is used to really to repeat something um, for emphatic reasons, right? And if I may offer a hint, verses 3 and 5 are surrounding really the main point of the whole psalm, which will be verse 4. So with that in mind, look at verse 4 in your Bibles, beloved. This is what the psalmist writes. He says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. And we can be confident that verse 4 is the primary point of Psalm 67 because it's organized, I'm going to throw another word at you, called a chiasm. A chiasm, for those who don't know what a chiasm is, it's simply a way to build up towards something really important. For example, in Psalm 67, verses 1 and 7 match one another as the, as the first steps to this chiasm. And it's crucial to understand that these steps match one another similarly in content. 
right? So you got verses 1 and 7. Next are going to be verses 2 and 6. Next will be 3 and 5, the refrain that repeats, which are identical, right? And this all leads up like steps, right? Going towards, as a staircase, to the center of the chiasm, which will be the main point of why the psalmist prays in the first place. Which leads us to verse 4 again. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So as God's people pray for his favor to be a blessing to the nations by making the gospel known to them, it is through the gospel that they not only praise God for his saving power, but are ultimately glad in him. But why are the nations to be glad and even sing for joy once they come to know God through salvation in Jesus? Well, the rest of verse 4 gives us our answer, loved ones. Look there again where the psalmist says, For you, O God, talking talking about God, For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. The nations are to be glad and sing for joy because the Lord will judge them with equity and guide them. He shall judge he shall judge everyone rightly with his perfect justice according, accordingly for their sins. Although justice can be wrongly administered by humans, right? Either ineffectively or corruptly, God as the judge of all the earth will do so with perfection. And that is something to be glad over, loved ones. Because we have all in some way have experienced, maybe witnessed or heard about injustices um, in this world. Governments falsely incarcerating people who did nothing wrong or release people who were guilty of a crime. Babies who are mercilessly murdered in the womb of their mothers. Laws that are created to oppress people while simultaneously lifting others above them, which are both image bearers of God. People sin against one another in various and terrible ways, leading some to truly wonder why the good suffer and the wicked prosper. And we have even heard countless stories of Christians, right? Our family history being persecuted for their faith in Jesus to the point of death. And all this seems hopeless in its own right, right? Yet, there will be a day when the righteous will be given eternal rest from this fallen world and the wicked will inherit their punishment for their wickedness by God. There will be a day when God shall do what is right and judge the sins of humanity accordingly and give rest to all his people forever. And God can only do this because he will guide the nations upon the earth. He is the sovereign ruler of all creation. Since he made it, he rules it. Simple as that. Although our God is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases, he does so in a way again with fairness. And if I may help illustrate this point even more, there's a passage tucked away um, in Scripture um, in the book of Micah, and this has to do with just that beautiful promise that the psalmist is describing in Psalm 67.4, a renewed world of absolute perfection and peace. An era where people from all the nations will worship the Lord in the end, when Jesus comes to make all things new as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Consider what Micah chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 has to say regarding all this. Micah says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide their disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. 
nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And when we read a passage like this, so many people assume that the only purpose in Jesus returning and making all things new is to judge all sinners in the everlasting fires of hell. And he will, loved ones. This is what the psalmist means, that the Lord will judge the nations with equity, with fairness. However, he will also guide the nations. Just as a shepherd leads his sheep to green pastures and still waters, the good shepherd, Jesus, will will return to lead his people into an era of peace. A time when people from every nation will come to God and worship him. A time where God will rule the nations with perfect wisdom. And a time where people do not rise up against one another, but live harmoniously with each other with the God who made them. Furthermore, there will be no more division in God's renewed kingdom. No more partiality regarding someone's ethnicity, language, culture, religion, sex as as defined by God biologically age, skin color, or anything else that sinful humanity has utilized to separate people from each other and, most importantly, God himself. Instead, everyone in God's kingdom will be united in peace by unanimously worshiping the Prince of Peace and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the God of Gods, King Jesus. This is the ultimate reason why the nations are to be glad and sing for joy, for there will be a day when God will do this. There will be a day when people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will come to a saving knowledge of God and praise him. And it is due to his, this precious reality that the psalmist prays for the joy of all the nations. Yet, the nations will only arrive at this reality when the church begins praying for this where it is utterly impossible for mere human effort to reach the nations with the gospel, prayer is the means to do so. Because prayer forces God's people to depend upon him for every provision, for every perfect gift, and every good gift comes from him alone, right? Therefore, God's people, the church, must pray for the joy of all the nations. Not only because God has promised this, but the church is the means to lead the nations in knowing God. And Jesus says he will not return to make all things new until the church has finished the mission of the Great Commission. As Jesus says himself in Matthew 24, 14, he says this gospel of the kingdom will be be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, right? Before Christ can return, the gospel must be thoroughly proclaimed to all the nations. And this, again, starts with prayer. And as I may share something with you, church. There are a few statistics that are worth noting as we keep all this in mind. The the International Missions Board, which is the global mission city that we're affiliated as Southern Baptists Church, has released some of the following data regarding some harsh realities. At the moment, there are about 28,000 people groups in the world. That number could change who you're talking to, but there's about 28 different thousand people groups in the world. And out of that total... There are about 7,000 unreached people groups. What does that mean? This means that these nations have heard very little to almost nothing entirely of the good news of Jesus. That's 7,000 nations who have not heard the gospel. 7,000 nations that are not not being glad by singing praises to God. But what's even more troubling now, church, is that out of the roughly 8 billion people that are living on the earth right now, There are about a little over 155,000 people dying daily 
without Christ. 155,000. That's two people dying every second, not knowing Jesus. Loved ones, it is clear. We must pray for the nations. We must pray for the nation's joy to be, to be made full in Christ. Because if not, more will die today without ever hearing the gospel. And that's going to be on us, church. Therefore, let us become prayer warriors when it comes to the nations. Let us pray for God's blessing upon us so that we can be a blessing to the nations, leading them to experience everlasting joy in Jesus. As Psalm 67.5 says, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And all this shall come to pass according to the Lord's will, especially, church, when we look at the final request of Psalm 67 this morning, which is the request for workers of the harvest. The request for workers of the harvest. So look at your Bibles, beloved, at the final two verses of Psalm 67. The psalmist says, The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Where the first two requests focus on God's blessing his people so that they could be a blessing to the nations, this final request shows us primarily how this will happen. And I have to be blunt, the first phrase of verse 6, it's a difficult one to interpret, especially since we do not know, again, the context of when this psalm was written or sung for. Some scholars believe that Psalm 67 could have been sung during one of Israel's agricultural festivals due to the phrase, and the earth yielded its increase, but that's just speculation. No one knows for sure. But yet, the CSB, this translation that many in this church use, offers more clarity when it says, the earth has produced its harvest. But what is the harvest? There's a passage in the book of Leviticus that helps understand what the psalmist is really getting at here in Psalm or in verse 6. Consider what Moses writes again in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 3 to 4. Moses writes, If you walk in my statutes, this is God speaking, and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Contextually, this passage is referring to the common Old Testament theme of blessings and curses. For example, when the nation Israel was receiving the law, the Ten Commandments, right? God gave them the choice to either be blessed or to be cursed. Seems like a no-brainer, right? If Israel chose to keep God's commands, then they would be blessed. An example of this is good harvest, and more importantly, continued fellowship with God by staying in the Promised Land, the nation of Israel. In contrast, if Israel did not keep God's commands, then they would be cursed. The primary example of this is when Israel was exiled out of the Promised Land by the Babylonian Empire, right? Therefore, this harvest then that the psalmist was referring to in verse 6 is a sign of God's grace and blessing to the whole earth. But again, what is this harvest still? Well, remember what I said about Psalm 67 being a chiasm, how the whole psalm builds like a staircase toward the point of the psalm in verse 4? In other words, the surrounding verses of verse 4 are like the parallel steps of the psalm, and as a result of all that, Verse 6 again, right, is it parallels itself to whatever it says in verse 2. And if you recall the point of verse 2, it is that the nations will come to salvation in Jesus the Messiah. And since the earth in verse 2 is the same for nation, the world in verse 6 is referring to a harvest of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Moreover, Jesus prays a prayer later in Scripture, which helps us to understand what this harvest is and how we as a church should act in light of it. 
Consider what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. Jesus says, again, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So in regards to this harvest then, Jesus is referring to all the souls who are ready to receive the seed of the gospel in their hearts, spiritually, right? Which leads them to ultimately come to faith and praise him as Lord and Savior. In other words, the earth is ripe right now with nations ready to hear the gospel. But yet, as we've seen in Psalm 67, the only way the nations will be blessed is if the church tells them the good news of the gospel. This is why Jesus commands his followers to pray to God, the Lord of the harvest, right? Not only will he bless the church with more resources, more missionaries, more laborers for the harvest of cross-cultural missions, but they, but they are actually sent out to be a blessing to the nations. Now I, don't want, now, I don't believe the psalmist would have all this in mind, right? I think it's assuming too much. But the emphasis of the earth being blessed, that much is clear. He had the assurance from God that the nations would be blessed all over the world. And this is why he continues to say in Psalm 67, the end of verse 6 to 7, he says, God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. He repeats himself. And so that's how sure the psalmist is, right? That, the, that God will bless Israel and the nations that, again, he repeats himself. To the point that he finishes by saying that all the nations of the earth fear him. And the Hebrew here, the Hebrew here shows that the action of God blessing Israel is so sure that the result will lead to the nations fearing him as Lord and Savior. In other words, the psalmist's assurance of God answering his prayer is seen really in the confidence of his prayer. The confidence of Israel being blessed and being a blessing to the nations to the point that they know and fear God too. And as we know, church, this shall come to pass when we start praying for the nations. And one way we can start praying practically is to pray for workers of the harvest, for God to raise up missionaries to be sent to the nations. I recall an interesting practice, this is a story a couple years ago, that I witnessed when I was at the International Missions Board headquarters in Richmond, Virginia. All the staff, missionaries, office clerks, all that stuff, they had a very simple but yet powerful practice. At 10.02 a.m. every day of the week, they would pray 10.2 every day. Very simple, but nonetheless powerful. And if you forgot Luke 10.2, that's when Jesus says, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray for workers of the harvest. And these people that I saw doing this every single day, but not only that, but Jesus in Luke 10.2, and even the psalmist in Psalm 67, they all really have one thing in common then at this point. They really believe in the power of prayer. And keep in that mind, do you believe in that reality too, loved ones? Do you believe that prayer is the means God will use to bless you, leading to the nations being blessed? Or do we doubt this? Lord's will be done, right? Or do you even pray for this at all? If we desire for the nations to be blessed, then we must be so consumed with our love of God and Jesus our Messiah so that we become restless over the fact that there are 7,000 nations who are not worshiping him right now. And, and 155,000 dying with them daily as well, too. As John Piper reminded us earlier, right, that definition I gave, missions exist because worship doesn't. And that should bother us, church. That should burden us. And I pray that we become restless over this. May that restlessness turn us into prayer warriors again, so that the nations may be glad. Therefore, in all of everything that we have seen and heard this, this evening, I pray that you will begin praying like the psalmist in Psalm 67. 
praying for the Lord's blessing, right, upon us so that we may bless the nations. And not only should we be praying that it leads to the nations knowing God, being glad in him, but trusting this will happen as we pray for workers of the harvest as well. And I'm going to end with this thought. Perhaps there are some of you who do not think that you're not called to missions in any way, shape, or form. Well, the Bible says otherwise. And this is what the Apostle John says in 3 John 5-8. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Although not all Christians will be missionaries actually go to the nations, right? The rest of us, we must be, we must be the ones who send them. Senders and goers. This is what this passage is telling us. Two different tasks, but both missional nonetheless. As a result, not every Christian will be a missionary, but all Christians are called to be world Christians. People concerned about completing the mission of the Great Commission. As a result, whether we go or send others to go to the nations, let us be a church. Let us keep being a church. Let us be more faithful as, as sovereign way um, to be so concerned about God's glory that we, that we not only live and preach the gospel, but we pray that the gospel will reach all the nations. Only then will, the, will people from every nation, tribe, and tongue come and be glad in Jesus the Messiah. And for anyone here who has never heard of the gospel, this was um, definitely a... Pa- Definitely a text meant more for the church to pray for the nations. But also it's our prayer for you as well that if you don't know the gospel, that you come to faith in Jesus because there's only one way to come to salvation. And that's ultimately through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because we have all sinned against our creator God. And because we are sinners, we have ultimately sinned against him. And the result, scripture says, is that the wages of sin is death eternally, right? But yet, because God so loved the world that he gave his eternally begotten son, that whoever believes upon Jesus as Lord and Savior alone will not, and repent of their sins and believe in him will not perish in hell for the sins forever in hell, but have everlasting life in Jesus, right? Not just get a ticket into heaven, but really a restored relationship with the God who made you. And this is only possible by faith alone. Seems very inclusive, right? But the Bible as objective reality, as objective truth, tells us this is the way, and because we all in our heart of hearts know that God exists, what the word of God says is true, and because we are all broken sinners, there's only one name under heaven that saves, and that's the man, Christ Jesus, who actually died in our place as sinners, so that if you believe in him in faith this day, um, repent of your sin to believe upon him in faith alone, you will be saved. That's what scripture says, and if you have any questions about that, you can talk to myself afterwards, or any of the other leaders about the gospel, um, and we'll be happy to love to talk to you more about this. But with all this in mind, church, let's go before our Lord in prayer one more time, and we will be dismissed.